Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be turning, you can open your Bibles if you've closed them back to Galatians chapter 4. Our text this morning will be verses 4 and 5. And I'd also like to welcome uh, our members of our Campus Espanol uh, are with us today, so it's good to see all of you here too. And aren't we glad that in the kingdom of God, that culture and language will not be a barrier someday? Isn't that a blessing? We will all worship in one tongue. And uh, we'll be able to do that together. It will not be a barrier. So welcome. It's good to be able to, even though we're two separate campuses, but it's good to be able to come together too. So welcome to our members of Campus Español. Today we're going to be talking about adoption and what beautiful words we find at the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to explore that a little bit. Uh, You'll want to have your Bibles with you. We are going to be exploring a lot of Scripture and turning to a lot of Scripture today. So hang on and uh, we will be digging into the Word here And Paul's words in Galatians chapter 4. But as we talk about that God has adopted us into his family, before we begin, I did a little research. And according to the U.S. State Department, since 1999, 249,000 children have been adopted by U.S. families from other countries. That's just so in the last, since 1999, that's from other countries, 249,000 children have been adopted. The most are from China, 71,000. Next was Russia. With 46,000. A third I thought was interesting was from Guatemala in Central America, with 29,000 children have been adopted into American families. Now, uh, about 20 years ago, I had the privilege of spending some time studying Spanish. I spent about four months in the country of Guatemala, and one of the most impactful, meaningful things, privilege that I was able to have, was to go into different orphanages, and because of the political climate, especially back when I was there, was at the tail end of a terrible civil war that a lot of parents had disappeared. There was a lot of children left uh, without parents. And so there was a lot of people coming down to this country to start orphanages to care for all the children that were orphans. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I would do is you'd walk into an orphanage and I would just sit on the floor. And some of you maybe have had a chance to experience this. And children would just come and kind of just cling to you. They would come, they'd want to sit on your lap. When it was time to go, it was kind of heartbreaking because you'd literally be peeling children off your legs because they just wanted that time with an adult and someone to care for them. A very meaningful, uh, meaningful mission trip that I was able to go on there. Uh, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, now within our country in the United States, and this is just the year 2013, 51,000 American children were adopted. That's just the year. That's in one year's period of 2013. 102,000 children are waiting to be adopted. And here's a staggering figure. 641,000 American children were in foster care. That's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, uh, even within our own church here, and I would assume in a body of this, though I don't know that there are families who are either pursuing adoption right now or have adopted and have experienced that, brought children into your, into your home. Uh, even within our own church, we are practicing James one twenty seven religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. At the Sugar Grove campus where I'm from, Uh, The Duncan family just recently returned from China, and it's on the website. What a great story. They just brought back this beautiful little girl named Claire, and they have adopted this little one. She's, uh, I think, about a year and a half, have adopted her uh, into their family, and uh, she is their fifth child, has all the rights just as if she was naturally born to them. Uh, The definition of adoption is this, from a world's perspective, the act of transferring parental rights and duties to someone other than the person's biological parents. 
And I see two parts to this. There is a responsibility or a blessing the child gets, but there's also responsibility from the parent's side too. From the child, the child will take on the full rights as a biological member of that family, won't they, in adoption. All the biological full rights, they get the blessing of that as if they had been born naturally into that family. The child receives that and accepts that. From the parent's side, they take on the full rights and responsibilities and acceptance of the child for the rest of their life as if they were born naturally. Adoption is a beautiful, lifelong, and sacred commitment and something that we are called to do. And you've seen a push in our church, I know we have at the Sure Grove campus, to really look at opening our homes and hearts to foster care and to, and to adoption. If we look at uh, adoption as one of the human institutions that God has created, uh, along with marriage, we think of what marriage is. Marriage, the, the unconditional love between a husband and between a wife, we see God's unconditional love for Christ's love for the bride, which is us as church. We see that in the human institution of marriage. In the human institution of adoption, we see what we'll be studying this morning. We see that, uh, what, a, what a beautiful picture that God has adopted those who know him as their savior, that he's adopted us into his family. Uh, my sermon title this morning is The Family of God, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. In redemption history, in the story of salvation, we see a lot of theological terms in Scripture. We see terms like, for example, election, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. What an amazing thing, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. We see words like regeneration, that God has given us new life in Christ. He's made us alive in Christ. We see words like justification, that the judgment of God, his righteous uh, satisfaction that he demands has been satisfied. He has imputed his righteousness upon us. All of these terms speak of our status before Almighty God. Adoption, though, is a little bit different. And one of the reasons why I chose this as a topic, Travis said, preacher's choice this morning. It, uh, so I always like to hear that because usually what that means is I get to say uh, God lays something on my heart that he's been speaking to me over the past few weeks and I get to share it. And uh, we, uh, we have a Saturday morning theology study that I'm a part of. And we just studied the doctrine of adoption. And uh, it's, just, it's, uh, it's just such a beautiful truth to picture that we see as in the world as we take children, either through foster care or through actual adoption into our homes they become part of our family, that God has done the same for every single one of us that knows him as his Savior. It's an absolutely beautiful doctrine. I'm very excited to study it this morning. Uh, the text this morning was Galatians 4, 4 through 5. I just want to read, if you open your Bibles, let's just read verses 4 and 5 one more time. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Before we begin, let me, let me uh, open us up with a word of prayer. Lord, it's a privilege to be here this morning with my brothers and sisters in this place. It's a privilege to be able to close out this year, to look back uh, for so many of us, God, there were times of triumph, times of rejoicing, Lord, but there were also for many times of tears and times of sorrow. Lord, I thank you, God, for your sovereignty, that you are sovereign in every single aspect of our lives, that we can trust in you, Lord, in good times, 
We can trust in you when things do not go the way we want them to, and we can trust in you when we do not understand. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we ask, God, that you would work this morning. Lord, you promised in your, in your scriptures that your word does not return void. And Lord, now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So let's examine this. And Herman, you did a good job here as you talked about the context. It's good as you stu- we study the book of Galatians to think about the context of this letter. It's a little bit different than Paul's other epistles. So, for example, in the letter to the Ephesians, we see right away at the beginning, Paul says, I, don't cease, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Philippian church, he starts right away with his letter and says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. To the Colossian church, he writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. To the Thessalonians, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. But to the Galatians, this letter is a little more stern. It needs to correct some doctrinal error and some thinking that had crept into the church that was not biblical, that was not truth. And so he writes to the Galatians church in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We see a little bit different tone in the book of Galatians. We see a warning and we see a return to truth. He's a little more stern with the letter of Galatians than he is to the other churches. And it's good to realize that because in the book of Galatians, we see Paul defending his apostolic authority with the church. We see Paul defending salvation by faith alone, as we're going to see in a moment that we are no longer under law, but we're under grace. And he also then applies this doctrine to Christian living. That's the book of Galatians. And so within this context, we see these beautiful words written again, when the fullness of time had come. Here's the Christmas story right here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's three points I want to study this morning in becoming part of God's family and adoption. The first one, I want to study, we want to look at God's perfect timing. Second, we want to look at God's perfect plan. And third, this is the one, the third point will be the longest, will be God's perfect love in adopting us into his family. So again, we'll look at God's perfect timing, his perfect plan, and third, God's perfect love. So let's look at the first point, God's perfect timing. Let's look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. And here we see God's sovereign will, his sovereignty. But when the fullness of time had come, think of for a moment, if the birth of Christ is the pinnacle of history, is God coming in and sending his son to redeem us. If we think, let's back up for just a minute and think. Think of all the prophets. Think of all the world events. Think of cultures. Think of nations. Think of all the things that had to come to pass, not just in that one period of time that we know is the Christmas story, but let's back up for a minute and think of all of history. Think of wars. Think of nations. Think of kings. Think of the political climate that went on for centuries before that, all designed by God so that his son could come and in God's perfect timing and his perfect will to redeem his people. Think of even just examples of the Christmas story. Think of a decree of Romans of the of the of the of Caesar Augustus that he decreed that a census should be taken so that Joseph and Mary would be able to go back to Bethlehem so the 
prophecy could be fulfilled. Think of the decree of Herod, the sad, very sad point in the Christmas story, that babies, toddlers, all males should be killed so that, the, so that Mary and Joseph would flee and be saved and run to Egypt. And the story goes on and on and on. All of, God, all of examples of God stepping in and working out his, his perfect timing and plan so that the prophets, what is foretold, could be fulfilled. Think of the prophets. Think of Moses. Think of David. Think of Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah. And the, again, the Old Testament, the list goes on and on. How all their prophecies were fulfilled. We see that in the beginning with Moses. When Moses wrote right in Genesis chapter 3, we see the very first prophecy after the fall of man that said, Moses wrote this, when God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. We see the very first glimpse of God's redemption plan for us right at the beginning, so many thousands of years ago, that he would bring his Messiah. We see a very first glimpse of that. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament saw that in different times. Uh, Peter writes in, in chapter 1 of his, of his letter, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets had a small picture in their point in history that God gave them of what redemption would be. They didn't have the whole puzzle. We have the absolute blessing of looking back now and seeing the whole story played out. And what a blessing it is to see that. But the prophets didn't. They knew that God had given them a small piece of what was to come, and it was their faith, the faith and the faithfulness and sovereignty of God that would sustain them, and that's what they relied on. They had a strong faith, even though they didn't know. So here we see God's perfect timing, but when the fullness of time had come. Second point, after God's perfect timing, is we see God's perfect plan. Let's continue in verses 4 and 5. We see God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In God's perfect plan, we see now, very in just a few short phrases, here's the Christmas story that we've just celebrated, that we see behind me, the stage decorated so beautifully, is we've just finished our celebrations with our family, for some still continuing, and we see, we see the Christmas story. Let's look at that first phrase, God sent forth his son. And the word sent there, I want to focus on that just for a minute. That word sent is used in the original Greek 11 times in the New Testament. Every single time it's used to mean he was sent or sent out. And I want to focus on that because I think it's important to know here that God did not create his son, that he sent his son. It talks about the preexistence of Christ, and we see a really beautiful picture here of the Trinitarian nature of God. We see example of God, the Son, who existed with time eternal with the Father. He didn't create his son. He sent him forth at this time. God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman. This speaks of the humanity of Christ, and this, throughout church history, has been a very contentious debate. And uh, if you look back at some of the, especially the early church councils in the first 600 years of our church's history, you're going to see that this subject came up over and over and over again. There were a lot of questions that came up about this, that he was born of a woman. What did the humanity of Christ, what does that mean? Does it, uh, did, did it just seem like he was God, but he was really a man? Or did he seem like he was uh, really God, but he seemed like he was just a man? Was it kind of 50-50, one each? Uh, or what does it mean, the humanity of God? And what we have here, we've come to know after 2,000 years, is that we see that Jesus was 
and this is difficult for us to understand, the scripture says that he was fully God and fully man. 100% God and 100% man. And that's very important that we understand that, that we understand that not only was Jesus fully God but fully man, because we have to understand that so we understand how Christ alone, as we'll learn in just a minute, was the only one who could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read this to you, says this, Therefore, he had, talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And as we have just sang, and David so beautifully said, Emmanuel, God is with us. And John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. So not only was God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, let's look at that next phrase. It says, he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So we have to look at first, what's the purpose of the law? And uh, Paul, again, in Romans 7, 7 says this, The purpose of the law is that the law showed us that we're not worthy. The law showed us that we're sinners. If you look at all the requirements of the law, it would be impossible for someone to to keep up with them because if we fail at just one part of it, we failed at the entire thing. There's no second chances with this to meet God's righteous requirements. And the law showed us our sin. Paul in Romans 7, 7, in fact, why don't we turn there for a minute? It would be good to see this. If you want to turn in your Bibles to chapter, uh, to book of Romans, You want to keep a thumb in Galatians if you can. Turn to Romans 7, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7 says this. Paul writes, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, you're listening to this, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known, he gives an example now, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. What the law brings to us is death because not one of us can live up to it. And that was the whole point. Romans 3.23, Paul again writes, for we have all sinned. A very famous verse we all know, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. If we look back at the Old Testament, the Jews, the Israelites, had to go and sacrifice for their sin, didn't they? Over and over and over again. They would have to bring an, a perfect animal that would take the place, cover over their sins, but it was temporary. It did not atone for their sins. And then every year the high priest would enter the most holy of places, and it was a fearful thing to have to do that, to make atonement for the sins of the people. But every year they would have to repeat that activity. And only Jesus, there was only one man ever in the history of the world that lived a perfect life that could atone for our sins. Uh, Jesus was born under the law. We were born under the law. But there's a big difference. Is that we've broken that law. We broke it right away, right as soon as we were born. Is that we were born into sin. But Christ, who was born under the law, did not. He lived a perfect life. He met all the requirements of the law. And he was therefore the only one worthy enough to be sacrificed on our behalf. I want to read a couple of scriptures to you here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Boy, think about that. 
I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Only Jesus, only Christ is worthy to be sacrificed on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One single offering. It was done once and for all. The whole requirement that the Israelites go back again and again to sacrifice, all done away with, with one perfect sacrifice from our Savior. What a, what a beautiful thing to think about what our Lord has done for us, especially this Christmas season. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they based their salvation on something totally different. They based their salvation on their ability, what they perceived that they could meet and follow the the righteous requirements of the law. And so not only would they look at the law in the Old Testament, but then they also also created a whole list of subsets of laws and interpretations that the people would need to follow too. And they prided themselves in their ability And only they could to be able to follow all of the law. And there was great pride in that. And they based their salvation, and they based their righteousness on that and their own ability to meet God's righteous requirements. And the irony of all that is, is they had the Old Testament with them. They had the writings of Moses and Genesis. And when they spoke of their father, Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 said, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. They had the writings of the Old Testament that showed that it was by faith, not by works. And what Paul is telling us here is that we cannot, we cannot earn our way into redemption. We do not earn our way into adoption. I think of a story when the Duncans went to China here just a little less than a month ago. They did not look for, they didn't stand back and look at all the children in the orphanage and say, hmm, which one seems the best? Um, Which one would uh, most fit well into our family? Which one has the best qualities? Let's rank them, and we'll take the best child. No. Um, They went, without ever having met this little one, to go adopt a child into their family. That child did nothing to earn the blessing of being part of a family, be taken out of an orphanage to belong to a family. That little Claire gets to benefit from that. We have done nothing to merit or earn Uh, favor with Almighty God. That's something that he has given to us because he loves us. Uh, Let's go back to Galatians now. Hopefully you have your thumb there. And let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. It's one chapter before. Galatians chapter 3. Let's read verses 10 and 11 together. This is what Paul says about relying on the law for our righteousness. Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And there we have it. There is the story of our salvation right there, is that our our redemption is by faith. And so many times we try to add so many things to the salvation message. And I think it's part of our human nature to, to kind of, is in, in an instinct, go back to, well, I've got to do something for this. This is too great a gift for me just to do on my own. And not, and not thinking that God has given this to me and that my righteousness is by my faith, not by trying to keep the law. And we see so many people still falling back into that trap, which is what Paul is trying to trying to correct here. In God's perfect plan also, let's think about this. In his perfect plan that we were also predestined. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says this. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here we see God's eternal purposes in his perfect plan. He chose us before the foundation of the world. I'm going to think about that for a second. Um, why did he do that? I always wonder sometimes why he chose me. I have nothing to offer I didn't do anything to merit this, yet before the foundation of the world, in love, he chose me, and he chose every single one of us that know him as their Savior. Uh, He did that knowing, while we were still in our sin, he died for us. He did that knowing of my rejection, my rebelliousness, my sinful nature. He did that for each one of us that know him as Savior. Knowing all that, so I love when Paul writes in there, in love, right before verse 5, is why he did that. In God's perfect plan also, we see adoption is distinct. It's different from justification. One of my favorite theologians that I've, we've been reading and studying in our Saturday morning Bible study brought up this point. I thought it was very interesting. God provided election. These are some of the theological terms of redemption history. He, he, he provided election. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He gave us, he regenerated us. He gave us a new life. He justified us before him. He imputed his righteousness to us. He could have done those things without continuing with adoption. And our relationship with him, I think, would have been profoundly different than what we have now. He could have done all those things and left us, and we would have been grateful. We would have been extremely grateful to our God for doing those things. But yet he didn't stop there he also went on to adopt us into his family so that our relationship with him would be what it is now, that we can relate to him as a father and not as a master or a servant or as a slave or a servant does to their master. I thought that was really a a very key point. Something interesting is that he chose to relate to us this way as a father and mother adopt a child. That's how he desires to have that, that type of relationship he wants to have with his children, with us. He gave an example. There's an example of there are created beings in Scripture that have a very different relationship with their creator than us, and that's his angels, is that we don't see in Scripture that angels have the relationship that we do with our creator. It's different. Uh, when Peter, in 1 Peter 1, writes of the prophets and all of their study and searching of the Scriptures they did, Peter says these are things in which angels long to look. And the Greek there speaks of sitting up on high in a balcony and kind of peering over the edge watching things transpire. And that angels long to look into these things. They have a different relationship with their creator than we do. The writer of Hebrews, when he's writing of Christ's sacrifice for us, says this in Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not angels, and speaking of Christ's sacrifice for us, not angels that he helps, that he helps, he helps the offspring of Abraham, is that the angels have a very different relationship. We were both created. He created us, people. He created his angels. He's decided to relate. It's his, we, I don't know why, but God has decided to relate to us very differently in the, in, the, in the spirit of parents adopting children. We have that relationship as a family that angels do not. So we've looked at God's perfect timing. We've looked at God's perfect plan of redemption and his adopting us now. Let's look at examples of God's perfect love for us and the fact that he adopted us. So let's look at the end of verse 5. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 4. Look at the end of verse 5. And our text finishes this morning with this. It says, So that we might receive adoption 
as sons. And here we have the, we're going to list, I'm going to list five blessings of adoption. And I'm going to use a lot of illustrations of uh, my own family and our family. So my children are here, so you're going to see lots of examples (laughs) and illustrations. Um, uh, My father did that. My father was a preacher for many years. He did the same with us, so now it's my turn to do that to my kids. Uh, But we're going to go ahead and illustrate that with a lot of illustrations from my family and our own family as well, the blessings of adoption. So first of all, let's look at the blessing of our relationship with our God. We don't relate to God, as I said before, a slave or a servant does to a master, because a slave lives in fear constantly of making a mistake or not living up to doing the job given to him or perhaps making an error or just making the master or the boss angry. There's a constant fear there. There's not an equality there by any means. Um, there's a constant, uh, it is a relationship based on fear. But let's go back to Galatians 4 for just a minute, and let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And let's look at that word Abba for just a minute. The word Abba is written not in Greek, it's written in Aramaic, which was the trade or the common language in Judea at the time of the people, one that Jesus would have spoke very fluently and used on a regular basis. Uh, Sometimes this gets translated into the word Abba could mean daddy. Now, I know, I think sometimes it gets misused just a bit because really it's not, sometimes that word daddy uh, that we refer to God as our, our father, our, our dad, or our daddy. It seems a little bit infantile, and that's not what's being, it's not what being taught here when we cry out, Abba, Father. Yes, I don't think there's a good word in the English language to try to translate that, um, but it isn't an infantile term. It's not a term of a, of, a, of a toddler crying out to their parent. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection that's used. And uh, to illustrate that, my children do not refer to me as Mr. Pilkington. They refer to me as, as dad. My girls still call me daddy. They, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a term, there's, a, there's an affection there that we have as their father. Um, any of you who work for, as an employee that has a boss, I don't call my boss um, by terms of endearment or affection. <laughs> and we don't do that. There's a different relationship there. My children, though, we have a much different relationship as a father to children. They don't refer to me uh, with formal titles. They refer to me with terms of endearment and affection, as we do to our parents. Think for a second of just the magnitude of that statement that we just read in verse 6, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, that we can refer to Almighty God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, that holds our salvation in the palm of his hand, that spoke everything we know and into existence with a word that defines all of reality, we can go before him and cry out, Abba, Father, that we have, because of adoption, a relationship of a father to a son. What an amazing thing that is. That has to sink in just a little bit, to think that we have that type of relationship. He didn't have to choose to relate to us that way, but in love he chose to do that. What a beautiful truth that is to think about that. Second blessing of adoption is this. We have the blessing of imitating our father. Uh, In my wallet, I carry a note my son wrote me for my birthday. And he said some nice things in there, but at the end, he said something interesting. He said, uh, he wrote at the end, he said, Dad, I want to be like you. And my parents said, you got it. That gets it right there, doesn't it? But I'm going to think about that for a minute. 
is I was very proud of that, and it did. It very, means a lot to me that my son would write that. But there are, some, there are some things that I do want my son to be like me. There are some things I don't. There are some things I don't want my child to imitate. And parents, we've all been there, haven't we? Have you ever heard your children say something that you say or use a phrase or respond in a way that you do, and you think, that doesn't sound so good when they say it, does it? Our children will imitate us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Paul commands us, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Meaning strive for God's holiness. He says, be imitators of God. All children want to be like their parents. Or at least going to imitate their parents. We take on as children the characteristics, like it or not, we take on the characteristics of of our mom and dad. Um, I, see my, I see myself um, and my father, and uh, we have in our Bible study we do on Saturday mornings, there's a, a father and a son there, and it's funny to watch the son take on the characteristics. You can tell they're from the same family. Even if they didn't look alike, you could tell by their mannerisms, their, from the way that they speak, you take on the characteristics of your parents. That's a natural thing. We have the blessing of striving to imitate our Father in heaven, that we need to be holy as he is holy. Uh, this speaks also of the nature of obedience. We need to obey our Father and that we should obey God out of love and not we don't have to obey him out of fear. Let me give an example of that from a father from, a, from our families. Is that um, moms, how many times have you ever said, wait till your, wait, okay, I get the finger out, wait till your father gets home? Now, that happens in my house, and usually that's, uh, I don't know if that causes children to shape up <laughs> um, in my house. At least I hope that it does. Um, but that's, uh, they say, wait till your father gets home, meaning there's trouble coming when dad gets home because of something you've, that, that's been done. Now, many times children will obey because they're fearful of the consequences, yes? Not so much that there's a heart condition of wanting to obey, but fear of the consequences and punishment will make them toe the line. Now, I would prefer that my children obey what their mother and I tell them or obey the Lord because they love us. That would be ideal, and that's ultimately what I would like. But I'll also take the other way as long as they obey too. And if it's because of the punishment, okay. But what I would prefer, and that we would all prefer as parents, is that our children, they want to obey us because they love us. And we think of how we obey God, our Father, should be the same thing. Is that in a minute we're going to look at one of the blessings is God's discipline of us. But we should obey God because we love him, because of what he's done for us, not because of fear of punishment. And John just writes this beautifully in 1 John 4.18. We don't have time to turn there, but you can write this down. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And really what that verse is saying is, if I'm afraid of what God's going to do to me because of my sin, if I'm, if I'm his child, then I don't understand how much he loves me. If we're afraid of what God would do to us, if we see God as the... It's a celestial thumb waiting to just obliterate us every time I make a mistake. Then we don't understand, I don't understand God's love for me. Um, The next blessing I want to look at is this, the blessing of forgiveness. Adoption, God has adopted us into his family. 
and the blessing of forgiveness comes with it, they're eternal. Meaning that God does not unadopt us after a while. Meaning, you know what? You made too many mistakes. This was I, I picked the wrong one. You need to go back to the orphanage. Um, think of the cruel, how cruel that would be to do that from a, from a human perspective. God does not operate or do that with us either. Um, our sins are forgiven, have been forgiven, and that forgiveness is continued. Um, I want to give an example of my children again. Uh, their mother and I don't go around the house spying out with cameras looking for all the ways that they can make mistakes. Um, we don't take the clipboard around. We don't do this to our children. We don't go around setting them up for failure. We're not going around trying to find all the terrible things that they can do and catch them doing something wrong. And God does not do that for us as well. When my children do make a mistake, when our children make a mistake, of course there's discipline, and there should be. But after every mistake or sin our children commit, there isn't a time where we have to go back and reestablish all the family bonds again and reestablish that this is your name, that I love. We, we do all that, but that's the whole point of unconditional love. So we don't have to reestablish all of that. Is that... That adoption, that we are part of God's family, and that forgiveness for us, what an amazing thing. Paul goes on to say, we won't study this now, that is not a license to sin, but we, can, we, can, we don't have to fear uh, God's punishment of us because he's offered his forgiveness to us. What an amazing thing. What an amazing truth that is. Let's look at the next one, the blessing of discipline. This is the fourth one. And this... Um, in many ways, doesn't seem, especially to children, doesn't seem like much of a blessing, is it? When our, when our parents disciplined us, doesn't seem like much of a blessing at all. And as as adults, sometimes we don't see it that way either. But there is a blessing of discipline, and we're going to turn to Hebrews in just a minute and read about it. But the question I want to ask first, before we talk about this blessing of being disciplined, is why do we discipline our children? What's the whole purpose behind it? Why do we discipline our children? Think about that for just a minute. We discipline our children because we love them and we care about them. If I didn't care about my kids, I wouldn't care what they did. I wouldn't give them boundaries. I wouldn't care. You can go do what you want. It doesn't make a difference to me. I discipline my children because I love them and I set boundaries in their lives because I know as a parent what's good for them and because I don't want them to stray. And so that is why we discipline our children. What's the goal of all this? There's lots of goals for discipline. I want my kids to live uprightly not just uh, as citizens of, of this state and this country, but also as believers. Um, I remember once when my son was very little, we were in a store, and uh, he was in the shopping cart, and he just pitched a fit. I mean, he just, for whatever reason, he's just, he, he was yelling and screaming and upset, and, and it was one of those awkward situations. We've all been there, yes, where you know, you're in the store, and people are kind of looking, and quite, you can see the raised eyebrow that says, eh, there's a bad parent. And uh, they, I could walk around, and you could just see it happening. And, I mean, he was just, this, this kid, I couldn't do it. He was just going off. And, and uh, all of a sudden, this older gentleman walked around the aisle, comes up to me and looks at me and said, uh, you know, that's the loudest child I have ever seen. <laughs> I said, okay, well, thank you. And, uh, and uh, it was a little bit awkward there, too. I had to agree with him. Uh, but the point is, we discipline our children. We discipline our kids. So they keep their sinful desires in check. And you'll see in just a minute how our desire to discipline our children comes from God's desire to discipline us. We discipline our children for safety. Sometimes life carries its own discipline and consequences, doesn't it? My brother still has a scar on the back of his leg the shape of an iron. 
because when my mom was ironing one day, she said, do not run next to the iron. It's on. I'm ironing. And of course, we had to jump over the cord. My brother didn't make it, and he still carries that little mark on the back of his leg uh, 20-something years later. Um, life sometimes does carry teens. Sometimes your parents tell you you can't stay overnight at that house or go to that gathering of kids for a reason because it's safe. When your parents tell you you don't text while you drive, there's a reason for that. They want to keep you safe. It's not that they uh, want to keep you from texting your friends, but they tell you these things. They set parameters because they want you to be safe. We discipline our children to teach them responsibility. We want to teach them obedience. We do all these things because we love our children. Now, let's transfer this over to why God disciplines us and how does this relate to the doctrine of adoption. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read verses 5 through 10 together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 says, And have you forgotten... The exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, talking about our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, but God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." Think about some of the words from the text we just read. God disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Think of a time in your life, and we all have if we know the Lord is our Savior, when God has disciplined us. How would, you, how would we characterize that time in our life? It was difficult, wasn't it? Um, you know, a lot of times kids, we think oh, our parents discipline us. It's the worst thing ever. To grow as an adult and walk with the Lord and be disciplined by the Lord is very painful. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a different kind of discipline as a child, but it's very difficult to go through. Verse 8 says, in the text we just read, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate sons. By God's, the nature of God disciplining us shows that we are his legitimate children. It proves his adoption of us because he disciplines us. For all the reasons we just stated why we discipline our children, that is why God disciplines us. The same because he wants those things for us as well, and it proves that we are his children because he loves us. And what an amazing thing. We may discipline as parents out of frustration and rage. Sometimes we do that. Um, but God never does. He only disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. The last blessing I want to look at of adoption is this. We have the blessing of an inheritance. As children, we will share in the inheritance of our parents' estate. Is that someday his death will claim all of us and we will leave either through a will or some, uh, whatever law we have, we'll leave something for those who are left. Um, I read a Washington Post article that Bill and Melinda Gates, 
Uh, they did not want to burden their children with the wealth. Remember they, uh, I think latest they were over $70 billion. If you put them in line with all the countries. Uh, uh, gross national product, they'd be somewhere like in the middle uh, just in their wealth alone. So they didn't want to burden their own children with wealth, so they're only leaving them $10 million each. Uh, a small drop in the bucket. But the point is, I don't think I will leave something like that to my children. But all of us will leave something. We will leave something. Let's take a look for just a second at God's inheritance. The inheritance we've been promised by God versus man's inheritance. One is eternal and one is temporary. What God offers us, his children, is eternity with him. Now think of the hope that that brings. Is we, can, we can have all of the wealth or, or nothing left in a will, but it's going to be temporary, whatever is left to us. What God offers us as an inheritance, as his children, what he will leave for us because he's adopted us, has far greater value. We're going to turn to one last passage together. Let's go back to the book of Ephesians. Let's read about this inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Our last passage we'll turn to. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Paul writes this. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." What is the guarantee of our inheritance? From an earthly standpoint, it's a will. It's a legal document that says that after I die, my, whatever I have left will go to such and such a person in such and such a way, to my family, to charity, whatever. That is, that is how the state, the law, guarantees it. What is the guarantee of God's inheritance for us of eternal life with him someday? Far greater value. Verse 13 in the text we just read in Ephesians says that we were sealed in a moment of our conversion. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That God has given us his spirit. That is our guarantee. That is what we have. And it is sealed by the Holy Spirit himself. That is our guarantee and a hope. Far greater, far stronger than the law, than a a simple will on paper. That is the hope that our inheritance bring, that we live for the eternal, not just for the temporary. In closing, after all of this, there's one point of application. It's, uh, it's, it's, December, it's December 28th, a few days. Christmas is coming to a close. As David said up here, we're going to sing our last Christmas song. For many, for many of us, this is a, a sad time as the holidays come to a close and we close. And for many kids, it can be a sad time too, but for adults as well. And uh, I think it's unfortunate it's a time of sadness. We've just finished this great celebration of the Christmas story of Advent, of Christ coming and, and his redemption story. But I hope that the attitude that we have or should have is the joy of our salvation should be carried by us, God's children, all year long. And we think of the blessings that we have as adopted children of Almighty God. He didn't have to relate to us this way. He chose it. And it's remembering that that will help us have that joy, uh, not just in the month of December, but the 11 months 
and throughout the rest of the year as well. Please stand with me for a closing benediction. We'd like to close our worship service. The words of John, 1 John 3, 1 through 2, says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Lord, thank you so much for the beautiful words and truth of your scripture that you have adopted us into your family. We pray, God, that this would be a truth that uh, would never become commonplace in our minds. Lord, but we would know that we would be thankful for the fact that we can come to you in our time of need as children go to their father. Thank you for choosing to relate to us this way. Thank you that we do not have to live in fear. Thank you for all the blessings of what it means to belong to your family and to be your children. We pray these things in your name. Amen.